version of the company pin Cause you know where that'll get you to I don't go version of the company pin There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Welcome to the American Family From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College I'm Matt Siebel In January of 1901 Mark Twain scanned the New York newspapers and imagined what he called the stupendous procession, a parade of celebrities, icons, and symbols, together an aggregate of the zeitgeist, which he expected to represent the 19th century to the 20th century. Twain's procession was not exceptionalist or progressive, though it satirized the rhetoric of exceptionalism and progressivism. It was cynical, on the verge of misanthropic. He described the 20th century as a fair young creature, drunk and disorderly, born into the arms of Satan. Its motto would be, get what you can, keep what you get. And it was guarded at the front of the parade by land thieves, convicts, burglars, party bosses, and U.S. presidents, including, presumably, the incumbent William McKinley. Twain reviled. At the back of the parade was also an American president, Abraham Lincoln, towering vast and dim toward the sky, casting his shadow forward over the whole far-reaching pageant, but brooding with a pained aspect and wearing a discarded American flag which had been substituted mid-procession with the skull and crossbones, inscribed with the words, Oh, you will get used to it, brother. I had my sentimental scruples at first. The tone of Twain's prophecy for what Henry Luce, the media mogul who founded the corporation which would become Time Warner, would dub the American Century, is echoed in the original series produced under the Time Warner banner at the turn of the millennium, The Sopranos. In Vanity Fair, James Walcott imagines Tony Soprano taking up the Lincoln position in a sequel procession, casting his shadow across both the record of the 20th and the potential of the 21st. Not unlike Twain, killing the celebratory vibes with his chronic depression. Walcott calls the Sopranos the gong of decline. It was for HBO, however, a harbinger of plentitude, the show's unprecedented success ushered in the prestige era, showering the network in awards and revenue, quickly becoming the model against which all the rest of HBO's not-television would be judged. And The Sopranos, perhaps fittingly, enjoyed a renaissance in the midst of a new crisis in 2020, when the streaming service HBO Max launched in the middle of a global pandemic, and locked down subscribers found time to binge the behemoth of the back catalog. As Walcott notes, a millennial minotaur amalgamating 1990s decadence and 2000s decay. My guests in this episode are two scholars who have binged the show during that revival phase. Peter Coviella is professor and chair of the Department of English at University of Illinois, Chicago. He is the author of five books and dozens of essays. Most relevant to this occasion are his memoir, Long Players, his meditation on another millennialist icon, Thomas Pynchon, which is called Vineland Reread, and an essay for Los Angeles Review of Books, Anthony and Carmela Get Vaccinated. Zion Yao is lecturer in American literature at University College London. 
as well as co-director of UCL's Sex and Gender Diversity Initiative, advisor to the Sarah Raymond Center for the Study of Race and Racialization, and co-host of the PhDivas podcast. Their first book is Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America. For more about this episode, including a bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash The Sopranos. I don't go fishing off the company Cause you know where that'll get you to I don't go fishing off the company There's nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell I have a specific answer for why there is a Sopranos revival associated with the pandemic. But my answer is very closely associated with the sort of corporate history of HBO and the technological epoch that we are now in. I expect both of you might have very different answers to that question. And that's sort of where I'd like to begin. A question of why now, right? That's fantastic. Yeah. Peter wrote his piece for LA Review of Books on the question of why rewatch The Sopranos during the pandemic. Zion, you're watching this show for the first time now in the 2020s. What does The Sopranos mean now. We might look back as well and think about what it meant for HBO, for television, for American culture at the time of its production. But it's specifically very interesting to me that both of you came at this show as a way of either understanding or escaping from the present. So I started rewatching The Sopranos, or I, in fact, I tried to rewatch The Sopranos some years before and found that I could not do it because James Gandolfini was dead. And the fact of seeing him so youthful, he ages so much. Zion, you're better able, having just watched it, you're like, he ages a lot in whatever that is, eight years? The first episodes, he just looks like a young man. And that proved to be mysteriously hard, and it wasn't really mysterious. It's just because I'm a person with aging parents, and that was menacing. So, of course, in the pandemic, I started watching The Sopranos, for the somewhat obvious reason that one watches long prestige dramas, that it was something to do to pass the frightening hours. But also, clearly, obviously, I've come from a very big Italian East Coast family, and that was just a way of encountering them, though it was a weird way of encountering them because they truly fucking hate The Sopranos. <laughs> they really do. Like, it, despite my own, like, as I, I say in this piece, like, they really just find it offensive. In a kind of really first generation, like, Peter, you don't know, nobody in your family has a gun. You've never seen somebody raise their hand in anger. Why should these people count as like real Italianness for the world now? Everybody thinks that's what Italians really are with like gumas and the track suits and they're all violent and they're so vulgar all the time and they're just offhand with their bigotry and their hatefulness. And they were very wounded by that, you know? Why should that count as real Italianness? and not them. And as a younger person, I was very angry about that because I found The Sopranos very affirming to my literary modernist sensibilities. You know what I mean? It was about psychoanalysis. It was about American empire. And I was very dismissive of their resentment. But while I was away from them and worried about them, I started to think a little more seriously about how wounding it would be to see this show that makes your version of assimilation 
it makes everything uncomfortable about it sharp. And they had every reason to dislike it, and they didn't need me to tell them not to. One of the things it's fundamentally about is the psychoanalytic premise that we cannot know things that are unbearable to know. That's all of Tony's. That's all of everybody's thing. We cannot know things that are unbearable to know. And watching it in the middle of the pandemic, Jesus, like when every day you're just trying to imagine how you're going to assimilate death and illness and abandonment and isolation on this ever increasing scale and knowing that, well, you are not going to assimilate it immediately. And it was going to be this long procedure that I think we're all, or certainly I'll speak for myself, very much still inside, you know, like trying to make sense of or live with or find a place inside oneself for these now several years of paralytic dread. It seemed to me The Sopranos was a real strong way into that. That was what attached me to it, I think, so forcefully in those like pandemic months, just as we were turning toward the vaccines, just as we were about to make our way into a different space of it. That was my sense. So I think this is where it's useful for me to come in because um, at the time of a recording in mid-September, I just finished watching The Sopranos for the first time in August and September 2022. And so to me, like the ending point of the post 9-11 moments seems to really reflect the vain hopes and the cruel optimisms of also the allegedly post and the post-pandemic, which is to be as dubious as the post and post-colonial. And so there's something about the the sense of both moving on and not moving on, which is very reflective. So the personal side for me, for the sake of our listeners, I am not Italian. So I, <laughs> I am a queer, I guess, first generation woman of color from Canada and Toronto in particular. But the interesting adjacency for me is when the, the Sopranos first was a thing, I was in school in a suburb of Toronto, which in my generation was then becoming majority East Asian immigrants, but the previous generation immigrants were Italian. And so actually the cool kids of my school were generally Italian, a certain type of whiteness being mediated through Italianness as dominant and the way that the Sopranos had its influence and that I came to the, knowing the Sopranos because of the way my classmates and the cool kids and often the bullies were the ones who were watching the Sopranos as themselves first and second generation Italians and without the sort of, I guess, critique that Pete's family is describing. Instead, like the Sopranos became the thing that like the cool kids in the school were swaggering and being like, oh, yes, my family might be somehow related to the mafia. And therefore, this makes me a more effective bully. <laughs> and so there's for me the strangeness of watching Sopranos through the lens of what I'd come to know about it as an uncritical replication of misogyny and racism that the show itself explores and largely critiques, but in a one way that's deeply uncritical. And then for me to watch it and be like, wait a second, the way that the guys in my class were talking about all the boobies and things like that is actually something that often the show wants to be critical, but also sometimes not in sort of the sex position scenes pre Game of Thrones. So there's this personal lens for me. And then I guess the later me of someone who's also watched all the prestige dramas that have so clearly descended from the Sopranos, watching Mad Men, watching Breaking Bad, and doing this sort of reverse eschatology is probably too grand a term, but you know, sort of this reverse <laughs> forensics. Well, no, forensics are inherently a reverse. Take that back as well. I'm sorry, this is probably this like the legacies of psychoanalysis that I'm dealing with that also confuses <laughs> all the temporalities of how I'm trying to analyze this. But basically, yes, just sort of reconstructing all these things that I'd come to see as norms in prestige dramas centering the traumas of suburban straight white men and seeing that The Sopranos actually 
originated a lot of it, but also did it so differently. Like I was surprised at how much more humor there was. I took itself a lot less seriously than I think a lot of these later prestige dramas do. The way it mediates action is very different than Breaking Bad. And so it's been really interesting with various parts of the different layers of my brain from like my angry teen self to my I know more reflective PhD self watching prestige fiction to my apprehensive current faculty self looking at the beginning of another academic year and wondering what sort of hope is there and what sort of class mobility exists for my students, <laughs> much like the way that like the last generation of The Sopranos we see being poised in possibly further upward mobility or deeper, deeper complicity, I guess, with the family business. Zion, that is so cool. Can I ask you a very provincial question about the like kids in high school, <laughs> like legit just in identification as though nothing of their like spectacular ugliness and constantly reiterated loathsomeness was landing with them? Not at all. Like I remember them talking about all these points and like hearing conversations with the very performatively macho Italian guys talking about like which characters they thought were hot. And I remember them like, oh yeah, Dr. Melfi, her legs are amazing, Adriana, blah, blah. <laughs> Things like that. And then as I'd be watching them, I'm like, wait, but it's critiquing all the ways like, right, they're seeing through Tony's gaze, but without the way that the show itself is then also positioning us to be critical of Tony's gaze, for instance. Yeah, yeah Zion, that's hard for me to hear because it makes my dad right. You know? <laughs> my dad's whole thing was like, Peter, you you like books and that's nice. But he did say like, people didn't hate Archie Bunker. They really laughed with him. They uh. identified with him. Mm -hmm. He was just right about that. What you're telling me is, you know, your father was not wrong about that. Like he was kind of being uptight about it, but he's not wrong. Tony is so charismatic. And as you point out, like the show is so funny, just so edge to edge funny, that that makes a lot of soft landing for identifications that you can just pass over the, oh, and he's also terrifyingly violent also, and he's arbitrary also, and he's racist and like, that is very, very intense to hear. I guess I wonder how it functions on a meta level then, that much like a, the trajectory of his therapy is Dr. Melfi feeling like he can't be repaired and there can't be a linear trajectory of healing. Like Likewise, perhaps that's the viewership. And I found like that also with my relationship as a viewer in the sense of like you enter in the first season hoping that there will be some sort of self-reflection, but by the end of it, you realize it's masturbatory and like you can't hope for better for him, right? Yeah. And I guess that's also like a case for the way that some viewers end up coming to it as well. That's really cool, yeah. I remember the show like winning awards from like psychoanalytic associations as a rich portrait of just the psychoanalytic session with exactly as Zion says, like atemporality and backward movement and forward movement. And I haven't watched the whole arc of it in now a year and a half, but it seems to be exactly as you say, like Tony makes progress and then that progress is shown to actually not be progress. There's degrees of reflection of which he is simply not capable or that he is situated in such a way as not to be capable of. And to think of that as a way that the viewership attends him is kind of amazing. I, I'd also love to hear more. You both, I know so little television. Could you tell me more about your sense of how it plays out in the other following prestige dramas? You know, like I watched a little Game of Thrones, like a season that seemed to me so differently tuned and so heavy with self-serious. I don't know, I'd just be interested to know more about both of your sense of this as inside the ecology of prestige TV, you know? Well, I can sort of start because I've been embedded in HBO's corporate history in the last few months. I can say that definitely the way HBO narrates its own history places The Sopranos at a sort of pivotal moment. 
for instance, the like 600 page oral history of HBO that came out a couple of years ago called Tinderbox, it's prologue, right? The first thing you read is anecdotes from the set of The Sopranos with Gandolfini being this larger than life figure, both as Tony Soprano and as an actor, and to some extent, a labor activist within HBO. I think most of the ways that HBO narrates its own corporate history and most of the sort of pop history of HBO has placed The Sopranos at this pivotal place where it moves from being the purveyor of second-run movies and boxing and low-budget dramas and softcore pornography into a prestige television producer. And in some ways, The Sopranos contains the formal adaptation of the evening soap opera. It also has the genre element of the gangster pulp fiction. So HBO is going to try to replicate that over and over again through things like Deadwood and True Blood, where they go to sort of these pulp genres and try to turn them into serious serial TV with really high production values, very good writing, not necessarily big celebrities, but oftentimes like very serious actors, British actors, so on and so <laughs> forth, right? So it's trying to replicate The Sopranos for a decade before it sort of succeeds with Game of Thrones. But it's always positioned as this sort of epochal moment in the history of that specific network. And also, I think more broadly in TV studies is then given, which I, I hope Zion will talk about, this place explaining how we get things like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and all the way down to Succession and Yellowstone and those family business dramas that Michael Zelay was talking about on our first episode that are current hits. I'm so glad that you did this intensive reading for us. I feel incredibly edified by it. <laughs> I guess one thing that comes to mind is that there's so many parts of The Sopranos that work so well as Metacritique, but it reminds me of when Chrissy goes to Hollywood and meets uh, Sir Ben Kingsley, right? And that anticipating, like, again, the chasing the next development of prestige television, which is to court British whiteness or like a certain type of whiteness that Kingsley is able to navigate in and out of. By the way, just a like quick insertion, HBO, it has collaborated with the BBC and it also clearly has a kind of anxiety of influence with the BBC, right? It is trying to replicate some of the prestige that has been associated with BBC television dating back to the mid 20th mm. century. And yet, the, I think that also points to something that was really interesting in The Sopranos, which of course is like navigating ethnic relationship to whiteness within whiteness, and that the show itself is quite critical of in terms of a certain type of Anglo whiteness being felt as dominant. And yet it's so interesting that they end up chasing Kingsley to play an Italian mafia figure. And then of course, HBO eventually sort of remaking itself with prestige dramas that have to do with fetishizing a type of whiteness, which is basically a recast posh British whiteness. And I guess it makes me wonder, like, why is it that, at least in my head, when I think of the children of The Sopranos, I, I'm thinking about AMC-specific dramas, Breaking Bad and Mad Men, possibly because they're so particularly masculinist in the way that certain other prestige dramas, like, I wouldn't think of, like, say, Atlanta necessarily in the same trajectory. And I was wondering, Matt, do you have anything to say? Does the reading that you do talk about, say, the relationship between AMC and HBO or HBO's relationship with FX or any of the other outlets that are now competitors in the prestige drama making machine? My answer to Zine's question, which will follow momentarily, 
move directly into the meta narrative of HBO brand equity, which listeners will probably recognize at this point as the interest that most animates this podcast series. But by doing so, I bypassed a more literal answer, which is that HBO staff associated with The Sopranos, both on the creative and executive sides, were much desired by rival networks. And most famously, Matthew Weiner, who worked directly underneath David Chase on The Sopranos, left immediately after that show ended to become the showrunner of Mad Men, which he had pitched to HBO, who repeatedly turned it down. At the executive level, somewhat similarly, an HBO vice president named Peter LeCoury became the head of FX during the time that network premiered its first wave of prestige dramas, Uh, modest critical darlings like The Shield and Damages, and then two true ratings monsters, Nip Tuck and Sons of Anarchy. Now, both AMC and FX executives openly talked about their desire to emulate HBO, which included constantly pushing the envelope in terms of sex and violence on cable television. There are a whole bunch of things that had never happened on cable TV before that happened on FX or AMC during the 2000s. But because those networks depended on advertising revenue and not subscription fees, and advertisers are famously squeamish, especially about nudity, both AMC and FX dealt with much more censorship and interference, and showrunners had to reach a much higher bar in terms of ratings to win back leverage. So that should have been the first part of my answer. Here's the rest of it. Definitely HBO wants to amplify that narrative that all the good television is in fact derivative of HBO television, right? Like that's good for its brand equity in the terms that Michael Zaleg lays out. But also one of the things that's happening within HBO over the course of the first decade of the 21st century, I think, an initial reckoning, and this reckoning seems to be happening over and over again within HBO, but an initial reckoning with gender. And the idea that HBO has been self-consciously through the 80s and 90s, marketing itself as television for men. Mm. And most explicitly in its sort of internal documents, there suggests that men control the remote, right? So in, in an age of channel flipping television, the presumption is that wives and daughters and sisters will just go along with whatever their husbands and brothers and fathers put on the TV. And therefore, HBO is trying to market itself to that demographic. And that starts to change in the first decade of the 21st century, most obviously with something like Sex in the City. And HBO does this same thing over and over again over the course of 20 years, where it tries to reckon with its whiteness, with its masculinity, but almost always ends up circling back to shows that in many ways are like The Sopranos, like The Wire, like Oz, and have in some ways a critical eye towards race and gender, but also the representation on the screen is almost always prioritizing some sort of male anti-hero. This is something I'm really interested to discuss with both of you is that what from the very first season was clearly like a problem of anti-blackness that was being portrayed as something that was specific to like the Italian project of also claiming whiteness also becomes very deeply psychoanalytic. As we go on from season to season, it turns out that 
Tony's original lie for why he couldn't be there for his cousin, Tony Blundetto, was because he fainted, but he pretends that it was because a black man punched him out. There's a number of other like formative, we could say like, er moments that turn to anti-black tropes as a way of excusing different forms of violence or other failures, such as like the murder of, I think, Jackie Jr. is blamed on black people in the projects, for instance. And so it's interesting on the one hand that the show ends up embedding it and says like there's something that's happening on on a psychic level, on a, a developmental level for Tony as a character, but a lot of the other characters as well in terms of how do they reposition guilt. And yet there's this one episode, I think in like season three or four, which seems like it's trying to give more complexity to thinking about anti-blackness, which is sort of like the crack episode. Like, you know, it's trying to do the wire in miniature where suddenly like they have a number of black characters who are minor that um, seem to be crack addicts and they're stuck in this house. They get ousted by gentrification and the complicity of formal civil uh, black civil rights hero collaborating with a former civil rights Jewish friends and actually using a scheme that was meant for upward mobility for their own personal profit. And so that seemed to be like in a microcosm, the one or two episode thing where like, hey, let's try to deal with the structural aspect of it. And then they were done. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I, I find that an unpersuasive episode as I do find a lot of the episodes where it is dawning on the And this is as a person who just like has a too great affection for its granular correctness in ethnic milieu, et cetera. But every time they try to actually think with the force that they are capable of thinking about, say, generation and class, about like race as structure, it kind of thins out and gets a little flat. I think, Zion, following exactly what you said, the strongest aspect of that to me is precisely when it's made psychoanalytic. So the famous episode about castration in the meat store, the occasion for it is the Newark riots. Like in certain ways, the Newark riots are like, at the center of whatever trauma actuates Tony as the man that he is. And I think that's just like super smart, super suggestive, super compelling. I don't know that it plays out with as much intelligence as it might across the rest of the series. You yeah. know what I mean? That's my own perhaps ungenerous adjudication of it. But I think at the beginning when like the riots are formative, for how the family shapes up, how the crime geography of Newark that they're so invested in sets up, why they move to the fucking suburbs and they're <laughs> in the like garish house in Caldwell, but they all go back into Newark for their coffee and things like that. What you said about like the psychoanalytic turn to Tony's masculinity through the mediating figure of a blackness that must be refused or must be overcome seems to me super right. Like Pete, I'm also coming from the complicated position of like, on the one hand, it would be very easy for me to be like, okay, this is racist and sexist in these ways. And indeed I'm doing that. But I was also trying to think like, in what ways can I, I open it up? And I think yep. perhaps one way that could be interesting is with AJ's Puerto Rican girlfriends in the very final season compared to Meadows' Black Jewish boyfriend in season two. Yeah. And there's something that's perhaps interesting that is going on there because the girlfriend character, one of his parents alleges that she was Black and he's like, no, she's not. And he's like, maybe she is. And there's sort of this moment of the sort of disappearing of Afro-Latinx identity and Blackness and sort of Puerto Ricanness, And also the sense that she takes herself out of the narrative. We don't actually get her full rationale. We see her discomfort over a number of episodes. But then in the end, she decides to absent herself. It might be also an overreading to sort of suggest a type of agency there that's going on with actually why should I want to take more up more that's, space in this narrative when it, I should have my own narrative. I think that's a great reading. Like that is a great and generative, generous reading of that moment. Here's a character that has been like conspicuous by her absence as anything other than a dancer or something tremendously minor 
in the course of seven or eight seasons. And that person is like, yeah, the fuck do I want to be with? Like, they have money, I guess, but they're also- At what like, cost? And, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's really a, a fine turn. It plays up too with my own sense one of the things that I think distinguishes The Sopranos, again, I could be wrong because I don't really know from television, is that it very quickly becomes every bit as interested in the dynamism and indeed the capacities for violence invested in the women Yes. in the show. And so by the time you meet Janice, who is an astonishing <laughs> character. Yes, amazing. Like I can remember the first time through when Janice shoots the guy being like, holy fucking shit. And also, what was wrong with me that I could not see that coming? Like the show has been announcing the differently calibrated but absolutely bulletproof strength of people like Carmilla, of all the proximate women. They're so very not the women of Goodfellas. Remember the scene in Goodfellas where we see them all putting on their makeup and they all have bruises? They're all sort of different degrees of battered is the point of yeah. that scene. That's not untrue in The Sopranos, but they're also titanically strong. Like Carmela, from the word you meet her, is just made of steel. And the show's investment in that and interest in that as it sits alongside the ever-escalating violence and misogyny of the men is, I think, part of what gives it its, like, tensile dynamism as the series goes on. Mm -hmm. And earlier we were talking about the eventual failure of any sort of moral reckoning for Tony, and that we see very early on as a failure. But I think that what the show does interesting is to delay... The possibility and our hope for an epiphany for Carmela up until the end of season five and then season six we're like no she's doubling down yeah she, she has suspicions about what happened to her friend Adriana but in the end yeah she wants the money <laughs> and there's that tear I mean they're beautiful beautiful but like when they go to Europe mm -hmm. and she's just having her existential grief and it comes to nothing mm -hmm. like it comes with the friend meets the boy on the scooter like, i think that's just a totally right reading like she has her confrontation with a kind of blankness and it's like well then i'll take the money i guess in a way it looks like it's going to be an epiphanic moment by looking at all like the beautiful architecture of notre dame but actually it's mediating it through aesthetic object which actually is the very same as like her pleasure with getting the fur coat with getting the diamond things yeah. instead of it being something that's being prompted by an actual encounter with difference. It is mediated through aesthetics. Yeah. Aesthetics as depolitical. Yeah. As the material, the indulgence being collapsed back into comfort and security. And I've, yeah, I just found that far darker. Oh, totally. And it aligns her too for me with the mother in law who she thinks she's so much better than. Like the mother in law who is just a nihilist, mm -hmm. like just a pure, I'm just thinking of aesthetic objects. When Tony brings her the, the little CD player. Ma, you love, you can listen to the music. Mm -hmm. ah. <laughs> yeah. And like, we watch Carmela approach the terrain of that kind of nihilism. Of course, she has lots of things to soften and mediate it. The kids, their success, Columbia, her money. Religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the darkness of it, she just says, oh, Tony's mother had some points mm -hmm. in her like utter, utter nihilism. And it was interesting that Tony recognized that in Carmela, when they have this fight in season six, where he accuses her of making this shitty house, which is not up to code, that could potentially kill the family that's getting into it. Yeah. And there's this very strange brief moment where the self-reflection has been turned against Carmela, and she's also unable to cope with it. And it's something that they don't return to. Yeah. Instead, they eventually sell off like, yay, she made it. We made profit. Yeah, yeah. That is so beautifully turned. Like, it's also the point Melfi's trying to convince him of all the time. Like, these women are not accidents, dude. Mm -hmm. You're choosing every one of them and every one of them literally 
is an echo of your mother. And he just cannot, I mean, fair enough. He just cannot have it. You know what I mean? And that to, to see that come into Carmela, which he thinks is like this preserve apart from that story, is fantastic. I want to ask about that practice in The Sopranos of abandoning plot lines. It in some ways foreshadows the very controversial ending, (laughs) but it's something that seems to happen over and over again. There's the wonderful episode where they are searching for somebody in the woods. The Pine Barrens. They never find him, right? And we never have any follow-up to that mystery. This is something that The Sopranos does over and over again. Something like a red herring, but also maybe something that suggests the nihilism that the show is engaging with, that it suggests maybe its placement within the decadence of the turn of the century. There are these storytelling suggestions that it moves towards even potentially allegorical places, but then fails to actually arrive anywhere. And it it seems as though they do this over and over again, including in the very final episode. Yeah, I guess thinking on a meta level, one thing that really struck me again compared to, say, Breaking Bad, is the way that the action does not ramp up in the same way with the same type of intensity. There's a different relationship to thinking about the economy of narrative Whereas in something like Breaking Bad, everything adds up, every little piece fits together. Hmm. Whereas in The Sopranos, it deliberately refuses catharsis often. Like the parts don't actually build up to the huge case that the FBI seems to be making in the the middle seasons where you think it's going to lead to us having like the court scene or like this big, the great drama of every little piece coming together. Instead, it continually to fail. And I think the, the sixth season in the opening really plays with that, that there's a number of people who are acting like informants that die for completely random reasons. And Tony doesn't even know that he's lucky that they've taken themselves out of the picture in that way. And so there's this almost necessary messiness that deliberately toys with our desire for epiphany, for catharsis, in I cast perhaps a, a psychoanalytic way that also translates to the way that is much more willing to be narratively messy and stay perhaps on the level of the everyday and the ordinary. I read them as just pure auteur flourishes. Like how David Chase is announcing himself as an auteur. That is to say, like, watch me invoking narrative frameworks familiar to you from a variety of genres. The nightly miniseries, the Dallas type of nightly miniseries, the mobster show, the crime show, and watch me refuse them with a kind of flourish. The end is just so exaggeratedly that. But I think you're totally right. You can see bits of that going along all the way. That seems to me part of its securing for itself the status of prestige, like foiling the genre conventions that it is also very much inside and using, I think just exactly as Zion says, like psychoanalysis is a great way to spoil genre conventions. Like having psychoanalysis as a tool, it seems to be one of the ways David Chase looks to sort of distinguish the workings of this in certain ways, just very narratively familiar set of episodes from the crop of television that surrounds it. It is very TV in its sort of use of the ordinariness in a lot of its formal apparatuses. It's still recognizably in a tradition of primetime American television from the late 20th century. 
And yet, I think you're right. These flourishes happen, which maybe, you know, I'm, I'm interested to what science says about this, because it, it feels like maybe in 2002, they felt more innovative than they do today. And I do wonder to, to what extent this exceptionalism around The Sopranos is something that will persist as it will be watched by in the streaming era. Our relationship to the catalog of television is definitely changing to the back catalog, to the archive of television, this sort of telescoping of television history that's happening now is distinct from previous eras. And I do wonder whether this uniqueness, the exceptionalism that those who watched The Sopranos in the moment might have felt about it will dissipate as we get further and more and more of those storytelling conventions become normalized, become familiar, and even greater risks are taken by new generations of showrunners. The next wave of new TV that I'm thinking about is the Netflix versus Marvel Disney conglomerates. And one reason why I turned to watching Sopranos with my partner is because we got sick of the Marvel D- Disney stuff. And I'm speaking <laughs> as someone who is like a dedicated genre fan generally. Actually, I prefer animation as my primary genre, anime, and then cartoons. And then I would prefer sci-fi or fantasy. And yet there's something that's been happening with like the homogenization of everything on Disney Plus and the Star Wars universe that we eventually got sick of all the new MCU and Star Wars shows. And we're like, okay, we're going to watch The Sopranos instead. <laughs> like a hard pivot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like a hard pivot. And, and, and in some ways, one I, I could also see it as being like sort of a dangerously like recidivist one. So I, I, I don't, I, that's one thing I also want to sort of bear in mind. But like, there's something that's also been happening with like the necessary reckoning with thinking about race and gender in more complicated ways that has been so easily tokenized by neoliberal conglomerates like Disney Plus, that means that even though I'm finally getting these narratives with people of color, women of color as protagonists, which I would have always wanted to see, but narratively, they're not able to explore things in the same sort of complexity because they're wedded to a studio style. Disney buying Marvel was just such a power move and I think is quite dangerous in terms of other creative franchises and the way that would be locked down and you know eventually will they absorb hbo and we'll have sopranos 2.0 that's so so well said that's a really nice capture of something of the sense of things still at play in the moment that the sopranos appears which does not exonerate it it seems to me from its capacities and incapacities to think at structural levels in some ways can do in some ways it can't do but there's a kind of volatileness to it that Zion, I hear you saying, is getting smoothed right over. Yeah. And I guess what also worries me is because, and I think that would be really easy for people then to confuse, say, having people of color, women of color as protagonists as being the problem to the aesthetic problem, when actually, obviously, it's a problem of corporations, it's a problem of finance. And that's also one thing I want to sort of warn your students about. That being said, it was something really interesting for me about watching the final season of The Sopranos while also, say, watching Ms. Marvel and thinking the difference between Tony Soprano's New Jersey versus Kamala Khan's New Jersey, especially <laughs> since, like, anti-Brown Islamophobia is such a thing in the later seasons because of the post-9-11 moment for The Sopranos. And then being like, hey, wait, Kamala Khan is now actually showing all these, like, vibrant Muslim communities and having a commentary on the way that they're being surveilled by the FBI, which 
again, Sopranos, interesting starts bringing up, but we don't actually see where it goes once Tony decides to like sell out the couple of of brown guys that Chris was selling info to. Again, thinking of your students, I would want to say something about Newark as just one of the most fascinating human places of the 20th into the 21st century. Think of like Roth, the, the Sopranos would be the sort of like Roth outside to Leroy Jones, who of course starts in Newark, presents a lot of art theater, to like the becoming South Asian of Jer- like that part of Jersey. I don't even know how to say it right. Like I, I as you can hear in my, the way I speak, I love the Sopranos for a lot of reasons. It's incapacity to grasp that in its totality I think is only going to get more visible even as its dynamism in other ways is going to speak more and more loudly. But the things that it was not able to grasp in its moment are also just going to be more and more vivid, it seems to me. This is a really interesting and important question when it comes to HBO's brand, its house style. It's so often located in specific American cities most famously maybe The Wire in Baltimore, but also Treme in New Orleans, Boardwalk Empire in Atlantic City, Mayor of Town. we could go on. Regionalist realism is potentially a kind of subgenre of HBO's reach for prestige, one which I think we have to credit to the millennial Davids, to David Chase and David Simon. That's what they give birth to as they are simultaneously, arguably, epochally giving birth to the 21st century incarnation, the post-pulp prestige version of HBO. But I'm curious, what do you think are the material forces that are extremized in Newark? You said that it's important for students to sort of grapple with this specific place. And I'm curious what you perceive as somebody who has a a sort of personal connection to the place. I will just say like my personal connection is Stanford, Connecticut, very different from Newark, et cetera, et cetera. But there are American East Coast cities that have a lot of the same story, right? Like post-war boom, followed by like racial uprising, followed by tremendous white flight and disinvestment. That would be the quick story of it. But the white flight is a very complicated one for all the reasons that Zion has pointed out, that whiteness is being mediated by a number of factors, Italianness and Jewishness, perhaps most famously in the canon, but hardly only that. What you see in Newark, and I think the show talks about that, particularly the crack episode, which I don't think is very effective, but also just the enmeshment with various forms of local governance, is just like the hollowing out of the infrastructure of the city, the turning to more and less Uh, corrupt economies, and the absolute abandonment of Black communities there. And that absolute abandonment in a sort of uncomfortable relation to the ways that, say, a huge wave of South Asian immigration remade Northern Jersey, like totally remade Northern Jersey. Those are the things that are alive there that it seems to me The Sopranos catches up with, but doesn't always throw its arms around. I would be super interested to think how what Zion is describing, I just think with such exactingness as like the corporatized inclusiveness of the aesthetic of HBO as it goes on through the decade, I just would kind of wonder about how that does and does not land on Chase by the last couple seasons. But those seem to me the the forms of like um, very large scale tension playing out along the like aesthetic fault lines of the show. Earlier in our conversation, we were sort of grappling with the possibility of watching The Sopranos or these other 
anti-hero prestige dramas of the first two decades of the 21st century from a sort of bifurcated lens where you can have one audience who is grappling with the Sopranos as turning a critical lens on some of the forces that you describe, Pete, maybe turning a critical lens on capitalism, certainly dealing with issues of race and gender with some degree of chastisement towards its central characters. But yet there's this other audience who can feel as though Tony Soprano is somebody to emulate Mm -hmm. or Carmelo Soprano is somebody to emulate, to identify with the characters. And I am curious to think if we distinguish the puzzle of collective intention is something we talked about in the first episode. (laughs) Is there a way to read that bifurcation as somehow intentional or perhaps as Chase's way of both having what he wants and also giving the network something, the the ways in which Tony Soprano and the Sopranos can become a kind of brand, right? Can become a figuration that doesn't even require necessarily deep engagement with the show, just the sort of character becomes an emblem of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious how you think that bifurcation reveals itself formally within the show. I have been thinking yeah. about this, and I think it's with the way that the Sopranos really develop sex position, which I understand is a term that was only really coined for Game of Thrones, but obviously has the Sopranos particularly to, in mind. And for the sake of your students, like the sex position describing any sort of like exposition scene where there's like gratuitous nudity, usually female nudity. And so that's why like there's so many scenes that happen in the bada bing, the titty bar. And so on the one hand, it's like a way of having a level of titillation as information is exchanged. And some people have often justified like the sort of gratuitous sexism as on the one hand, either exploration of misogyny or somehow, you know, it's more realistic, it's more gritty. Mm-hmm. However, I was talking to some friends about this and they pointed me to the Wikipedia entry for the bada bing, which is actually very detailed. And it turns out it's not realistic to have naked titties in New Jersey at a place that serves alcohol. There's actually laws against that. So the very way that they're usually justifying sexual violence against women or displays of, of nudity, environment of misogyny as somehow being realistic is in fact not realistic. And so I thought that was a really interesting detail that speaks perhaps to the way that this turn to sexualized aestheticization as a type of justification that seems to give the veneer of a grittiness, which is also situatedness in the particular details of what New Jersey mafia is supposed to be like. And yet the actual specificity of location is that the bylaws do not permit that to happen. (laughs) You're also giving an example that very directly falls in with mandates from the top of HBO, at least in the era before The Sopranos, which was if you're making original programming on HBO, you need to sometimes do things that you're only allowed to do on HBO, one Uh, of which is... Distinguishing HBO as HBO, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is part of the brand, right? We We can do nudity, we can do violence. There's certain kinds of content that also include things like Mm -hmm. queerness, Mm -hmm. right? That we can show that other networks either aren't allowed to show or will consider risky, either because of the FCC or the squeamishness of advertisers, whereas the executives all the way up to the top at HBO are reminding their showrunners and creators who have a lot of freedom that one of the things you should do with that freedom is do things that you wouldn't be able to do on any other network. 
right? And so absolutely, the example you give of sex position is something that really could only happen on pay TV. And so it is offering something to HBO. Here's part of your brand, your house style, while also doing the, the sort of storytelling work and perhaps even the philosophical work that Chase wants to do. That's super, super, super interesting. I mean, my sense of that, which it, it's non-realism is not a surprise to me. I always thought diegetically, the point of it was as with the, what we were talking about earlier about the relation to blackness, like one of the ways that increasingly rich and suburban guys in the show identify themselves as still working class mm. is going to this bar is their misogyny, essentially. Like, and that identifies a class difference between them and the Cusimanos or the Melfis and stuff like that. And of course, that's what my family reacted to. Like, you know, fuck that. That's that, like, like violence and vulgarity and misogyny is what makes true Italianness as opposed to assimilated Italianness. And they didn't like that at all. But I think that, like, dovetails entirely with the reading of, like, the corporate form that's saying if you're going to be on HBO, realist or not, this is what's going to be in this space. That's is very compelling, I think. And this is a small quibble that I had, which is that I think one part of Tony Soprano's masculinity, which remains uninterrogated, is the fact that we're supposed to, like, he's always being shown as somehow being a good lover, despite being completely selfish. This is the thing, because, like, whenever we see him having sex, even though it's, like, disgusting, whatever, like, the woman always pretends to come. And the thing is, like, initially you think, like, oh, she's pretending to have an orgasm because it has to do with he's the boss or has to do with money. Mm. But the thing is, eventually he ends up having lovers that actually he has no power over and like they have their own money and like some of the other girlfriends like explicitly like refuse any sort of money and are financially independent. And you're like, why are you still showing him as being a good lover? Like he actually has something to, yeah. to give. We know that he doesn't go down on anyone because of the whole yeah. way that was made such an issue with Junior and everyone like laughing at him. And even <laughs> Carmilla being, ha, huh, I'm so happy that you don't give me oral sex because somehow that means you're more of a man. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. And so I thought yeah. that like that to me was like something that sort of bothered me. That is a very like nitpicky detail. But Oh, I don't think that's a nitpicky detail. That's part of here's how I would say that in my, my own language would be like, that's the show needlessly insisting on Tony's charisma. Mm, yes. You don't got to fucking insist on his charisma. James Gandolfini is so charismatic for eight seasons. He's just the most vibrantly charismatic actor I can think of, and I assume that's not just because of my like buried ethnic cross identifications with like, oh, he knows how to say uh, regatta or whatever. He's just an immensely charismatic actor. And in those instances of design, I think you're right. His charisma is not in question. Mm -hmm. That doesn't need to be narratively uh, expositized. Thinking of his charisma, it's the way that he's transformed the bathrobe into a robe, <laughs> right? <laughs> Into like a regal robe. Yes, and I found myself sort of tracking, like obviously the iconic scene of him picking up his newspaper in the bathrobe, yeah. and then eventually tracking like when does he wear his bathrobe? Is the bathrobe cleaner? Sometimes it's more white than other times if it's opposed to beige. Yeah. Later he shifts yeah. like actually wearing pocket squares, and he goes away from again. And as as though to track, and this is one thing that's curiously we haven't talked about, which so takes up the first couple seasons, like his depression. The fact that it is a show not only about edible conflict, not only about family as condensation of violence rather than preserved apart from it, but he's fucking depressed, like clinically depressed. And the show is super invested in that, like just the like heavy-lidded immobility. And it tracks him into that Carmela's semi-patience, but gr growing into intense irritation. It seems to me that part of his sustained charisma is his ability to live in that fully as a recognizable Tony Soprano, even as he's like psychically immobilized, only rescued by violence, by almost being shot and not quite being killed. Yeah. 
this is a big part of the behind the scenes history of the show as well in that Gandolfini was having major problems with addiction, mm-hmm. with depression throughout the run of the show. And he very directly blamed the character. He was very much a method actor, right? And living inside of Tony Soprano for several years and trying to not only internalize to some extent his violent streak, his misogyny, but also his depression, Mm -hmm. right? So that he could wear that depression visibly. Gandolfini sort of openly blamed the character for his own psychological problems. Now, (laughs) whether that's some sort of projection, we could certainly quibble with, but that that is part of the oral history of the show, right? Mm. Is the other actors and producers and writers saying the show's success was a source of a great deal of worry because the expectation that it could go on meant each ensuing season was a greater danger to Gandolfini. I was wondering about that for a lot of the characters, especially in terms of diet, because they're shown as eating yeah. a lot. And I came across yeah. this thing that um, the actor who played Bobby said that at one point he had to eat several porterhouses, <laughs> which is like, he's like, he's like he goes, there are worse things to have to have to have done, he said, like, but, uh, you know, that sort of t- that takes a toll on a person. And Gandolfini, having died so young, a heart attack, you can't help but wonder, like, hot, like nitrate rich red meat all the time is a thing that's because issue for a character but then you sort of worry about him and other characters and the way that some of the other characters wear fat suits there's also something about like his internalized fat phobia that he redirects against other people but there's the sort of yeah, surveillance yeah, yeah. Of, against bobby yes yeah. against bobby often or um pussy and other people yeah and then i think it's interesting this of like saying adriana and the way that she's supposed to be in this culture where men are allowed to eat a certain way but the woman can't and the way that the stress manifests for her as like this gastrointestinal yeah. problem her irritable bowel so is so great, so moving. Every the whole arc of Adriana, I found unbelievably compelling, unbelievably moving. The way that this, uh, I think, it originally intended just minor character like comedy girlfriend, mm-hmm. becomes the source of like enormous pathos in the show, and navigating essentially Carmela's dilemma in this very different way. The the irritable bowel stuff with her relation to the FBI is so so canny in exactly the terms of saying like because of course ingestion is so much a part of this like. The, the texture of life in the show, you know? I, I think we have to talk about the women characters in this show. Carmela and Dr. Melfi were well-written from the start, but I also think that the actors kind of took over these characters. And I think maybe, uh, you know, Drea De Matteo's performance as Adriana may be the, the most obvious example of this, but I think it's also true of Edie Falco, who is just a like powerhouse, that these characters become something else because of the power of the actors and the skill of the actors. And it allows The Sopranos, maybe in ways that Chase wasn't even prepared for, to explore the dynamics of marriage, of Mm -hmm. heterosexual relationships. Totally. The, The divorce episodes, yeah. I'm not sure the show is nearly as rich if it isn't for those actors in some ways are the equals of Gandolfini and I would say superior to almost anybody else in the show. So you have these three women that alongside Gandolfini, you know, are mesmerizing on screen. The show almost can't help itself, but go back to them to give them better scenes, more arcs, so on and so forth. And so the show in in some ways becomes about these women in ways that I'm not sure the first season anticipates. 
Hmm. That's interesting. I think it wants to think that of Melfi and mm -hmm. certainly Carmela lives up to that in the first season, but I really think Janice's appearance does something to the alchemy of femininity in the show because Janet has a capacity for violence that's absolutely equal to Tony's. And it plays out, of course, in different ways. She's also playing the angles like Tony is. I find Janice a spectacularly compelling character. And exactly, Matt, the way you say, like, that actress came in and made that character uh, much more vibrant with contradiction and conflict rather than just comedy figure of the hippie sister and come back. Like, she's just such a wonderful foil, especially because otherwise when people think about, like, women in The Sopranos, you think of all the sex workers at the Bada Bing. And like, she just goes against so many of the, those conventions of that. And like, what does it mean to have fat actresses who, who occupy themselves fully? And like, the, on the one hand, we have that whole plot, plot line of the insult given to the one mob boss right. that has to do with a fat joke. Johnny Sack. Yeah, Johnny, yeah. Yeah, Johnny Sack's wife. And the way that he insists on defending her honor. And then notably, he's one of the few men who does not cheat on his wife. Yep. And yet also like, there's something with Janice that shows that like, she is a big woman who is able to play with the, with the sexual politics of her position and navigate her sexuality in ways that don't become just a joke against the backdrop of people like Adriana. Totally, and does it with spectacular canniness, with that sort of angle-playing chess-like agility of mind that we're meant to identify with Tony being the mob king, et cetera, et cetera. And in certain ways, she's better at it than he is. She's always winning. <laughs> she's always managing to make her play work, even with poor Bobby. Oh God, poor Bobby! Having to poor Bobby, can we... <laughs> Bobby Bacala is another character that starts a just comedy figure, who acts his way with sweetness and woundedness into this larger mm -hmm. part. Because when he starts with Junior, he's just this like object of abuse. Why you gotta be so nasty? Mm -hmm. He says that's Bobby being very feminized. Again, unreasonably moving to me, the, the trajectory of Bobby Bacala. God, yeah, it's it's so interesting because also he's the closest thing to someone that you sometimes want to cheer for, but then he turns out to have these really pre-Trumpian sentiments that there's this, the whole episode where they go up to his his lake house yeah, and yeah, yeah. he has to like murder some Quebecois person yep. because Tony just makes him do it. But also he like says my great grandfather or something was, was an illegal immigrant, but we should build a wall to keep the other ones out. David Chase is not pulling a lot of punches. Like there's that, I think, very unsuccessful episode where like they're they're protesting uh, Columbus Day or oh, whatever yeah. it's a, a sort of poor episode but at least David Chase is like hey anti-Italian defamation people get fucked with that I know who I'm talking to and with and I know the variety of political positions that inhere in Italian American life so stop with that stop with the model minority Italianness. and I think Bobby who's so charming and so rootable for and so sweet his Trumpian noxiousness is there to Mm -hmm. Just remind you of that fact that the show and David Chase has not forgotten that. Speaking of model minority, what do we think of Meadow's trajectory? Because she's the closest figure that we have to someone ascending to respectability. Well, the first thing I feel about Meadow is like, her name is Meadow. I'm all in after that. Ooh. Like you have two kids in their name, Tony Jr. and Meadow? Yeah. What speaks more to the desire for assimilation, except it's also the Meadowlands? Like amazing, amazing, amazing. But I think she's the place where the combination of anxiety and aspiration just lives most. As a character sort of locked in that from her parents' perspective, you know, it's just the, the second generation thing entirely. Like, we want you to go to school. We want nothing that happens at school to change you in the least little bit. Mm. Well, I find her particularly frustrating because she also seemed to have Carmelo-like ability to bury any serious consideration of complicity, yeah. even though she's the one that 
early on introduces AJ to some GeoCities website about what their family is about. <laughs> I know, and yet, I know. and at the end, it's and as I think it's particularly interesting to think of her as the figure, precisely because with the the much debated ending, like she is the character who comes in late, yeah. who when she opens the door seems to be the reaction to which we get Gandolfini's final shot, right? Yeah. So he's reacting to her. There's something about Meadow coming in late, literally not being able to fit in quite properly until she is actually in the yeah. in the end able to parallel park. Like she seems to be fitting herself yeah. back into New Jersey <laughs> in a very literal way of yeah. taking a career possibly through law to defend people like her dad. Yeah. She managed to fit in the ends. Yeah, Zion, I, that helps me a lot with like, she's frustrating as a character. It's kind of frustrating because she goes in the same circuits and like I'm all on board with like, oh, she has to unknow the things that she knows. But her unknowing d d doesn't seem as rich in the field of contradictoriness as several other characters. That said, Finn was a fascinating like little detour in the show through Finn's encounter with the, which is again, the show thing about class and stuff like that. It's use of Finn and that character is just like constant baffledness about where he was in the world. I thought was an effective counterpoint to Meadows straining toward knowingness, you yeah. know? Somewhat to support both of your points, the first episode where Chase said he felt like it was working and he knew where the show was going to go and he, he had sort of found the core of the show was the one where Tony and Meadow go to visit they go to Bowdoin College, oh, yeah. my dude. They go to Bowdoin College. Holy shit. Yeah. I wasn't watching the show. I didn't have HBO. It was 1999. Whatever. I also was like, oh, I don't need another mobster show. I don't need anything about that. And then I got all these messages. <laughs> like, dude, you have to be watching this. They go to Bowdoin. And then it ends with a quote from Hawthorne. And that's it. I was right, like, right. okay, all right. I'm in. All right. Exactly. Yeah. And that Meadows character was almost important for what it brought out of the Tony character, right? That here was the one woman on the show that he couldn't look at as a sexual object. I mean, even his sister and his mother, he repeatedly evaluates them, not even euphemistically sometimes, according to their abilities to satisfy their husbands. But Meadow, she tells him Finn's been sleeping on the floor and he's like, you're living in sin. Talk to your mother about this shit. Fatherhood is an ongoing sort of source of angst within the show, but particularly being the father of a daughter, right? And then certainly the generational ambition to relieve her and to a lesser extent, AJ, of the struggles and the taboos that he, he feels as though he has been left with. You both referred earlier to this show capturing something about that turn of the century moment, whether it's the 9-11 moment, the sort of decadence of America before, you know, the end of history was over. That period in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, to a lesser extent, where the beginning of the decline became visible, right? And The Sopranos is oftentimes associated with some sort of turning point, not only in television history, but in American history. Right? So I'd like you to try to articulate, like, what is it that is the zeitgeist that this show is capturing? Because it over and over again, critical and aesthetic claims are made about it in those terms. And I'm, I want to try and locate what is it responding to? What are the material conditions that it's manifesting? What is this moment in history that it is supposedly the media epitomization of? Yeah, man, bold. Bold question. <laughs> like, 
Here, you ready? I'm gonna give my I'm gonna give my my completely untethered shot at it. It goes like this: Show Pierce right in 1999. I think that's right. Yeah. Right. If you wanted to just do it as the capstone aesthetic object of the 90s, in which you would figure the 90s as like absolute marginless triumph of neoliberalism, like Clintonite triumph of the neoliberal project and the subsumption of all sorts of political, aesthetic, ethical projects with the increasingly vividly callow, unavailing project of neoliberalism. So you could say that The Sopranos is the show that looks back at the techno-optimist Clintonite 90s and sees the rot and just absolutely sees like this is just another version of what Chase will call American selfishness. Like his big gag for the show is like, they're the most selfish people in the world and America's selfishness is horrifying to them. And then what happens? Well, Bush gets elected and then it's 9-11 and your options descend into technocratic liberalism or tremendously xenophobic, saber-rattling Americanism. And the show is right in that moment and it's forecasting like, oh, that thing that we were wrapping up ourselves with, with a certain sense of like Clintonite possibility and optimism. That was fucking bullshit. That was just callow from the word go. That was as good as this guy robbing. What's the first scam is with a like insurance company, a health insurance company. Not a fucking accident, you know? So that would be my perhaps too generous reading is like by 1999, they're looking at the neoliberal capture of all these different kinds of energies. And Chase is looking at it with a kind of horror that the next years will only amplify and make more vivid. Oh my God, that's... I think that you did a wonderful job of like giving a good zeitgeist <laughs> reading. I guess I'm trying to think through something that has to do about taste that has to do with like mm. the fashion of the time, but also like in one of the early seasons, Barada is brought up as something that people don't really know about, which has become commonplace <laughs> to again, like Carmela herself becoming a sort of this, a, a fashion icon in retrospect for her, the sort of tackiness that she occupies the show sort of navigates and critiques, I think, a nostalgia for aesthetic objects. Tony only watches like black and white movies. There's a, such a preoccupation with like thinking about like which restaurants are good, what food is good, but also like then say demolishing the supply chain that allows them to have really good local eggs. There's something going on there that I can't fully articulate that is happening across many different registers in terms of a relationship to taste, but also critiquing like the structures that make taste possible and. I think it's tied something to the way that it's critiquing a type of white middle American class aspiration generally that is bound up in suburbia. I'm sorry, dude, you're capable of making that reading in a way that I am not. Like the the migration of taste over the decades, it just kind of blanked me. But as you're saying, I'm like, oh my God, that's right in that way. That's right in that way. That's right in that way. Like the scene where they go to the coffee shop and Pussy and what's his name are so mad that the Italian culture is being ripped off. Mm. Like that's a moment of like the historicization of a certain kind of taste. That seems to me super smart, <laughs> a super smart way of tracking both the show's emergence, but it's like weird uptake. It's, it's strange mm. and ongoing afterlives. I guess that's the thing I also invite your students to think about is like, we're talking so much about like the big events of the Sopranos, but there's so much happening on the level of detail in terms of what people are eating, what people are wearing that I think be really rich. Like I found myself tracking like how Carmela's hair looked because like her hair was particularly awful. Like the season before she decided to break up with Tony temporarily, like it just getting, it was so clearly wig-like. And then season five, where it seems to be her, her liberation season, so to speak, her hair is very obviously like post-divorce princess dye hair that seems to also have the same, have the sort of same aspiration for a type of white bourgeois feminist freedom. 
And also she had this type very like geometric necklines or things I associate with her geometric necklines and layered necklaces and how the aesthetic would shift and change. Then she navigates away from that type of neckline, except in season six, after they have a fight, she's back to the very geometric neckline as like, haha. I guess this is where Matt Wiener got all those ideas for how specific uh, costuming should be for Mad Men. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just yeah. incredibly rewarding in terms of the richness of detail, like which meats people are eating at different times, mm -hmm. the cereals that Tony eats in the morning all beget great points of analysis. The kind of meals which are just obsessively attended to. When we go in the basement, we see the pastas they have. We see the kind of tomatoes they get. We see him going to the deli and eating the meats out of the thing. Like, I could not agree more with the granular delectation of the show is very rewarding. Mm -hmm. in, in these registers that, you like, not just Carmela's outfits change, but Adriana's dress shifts ever so gradually when she owns the club. And then stuff like Polly Walnuts looks the same the last day as the first <laughs> You know, just absolutely, you know what I mean? But that's really part of it. Like his absolute obdurate refusing to leave the moment that he's in. And that's both characterization. The pompadours. The pompadours, the tracksuit, the swagger. Matt, you asked such a hard question and I don't know that we come up with a good answer for it. Like the ways that the show invites identification that it wants to unravel. And it does both aggressively. Like, I still think that the third season, which is really a season about sexual violence, is Chase coming to grips with, like, well, it's clear that people are loving these men, and I need to interrupt that. But however much one interrupts that, they're still unbelievably compelling for all the, for the granular reasons we're detailing here. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, just a problem that the show is constantly negotiating without ultimate solution, because it's not a problem to which there is an ultimate aesthetic solution. I actually think the two answers that you each gave to that question cohere. I would define neoliberalism as governments by, fisc by fiscal arbitrage, right? That it, it compels its subjects to a kind of cost-benefit analysis as a framework for all policies and choices, both individual and institutional. And in neoliberal society, the spirit and the letter of the law exist only as a kind of baseline against which we measure financial risk, right? Can you make more money breaking the law than is required to mount a successful legal defense or negotiate a settlement or lobby to have new regulations or new legislators elected, right? Mm -hmm. Is the grift worth more than the graft required to pull it off? The, the exchange that you're making for that kind of governance is the production of consumer goods, and services, a kind of bacchanal of consumption and convenience that is the payoff for allowing the infrastructure, the welfare state to, to dissipate, right? The idea is the amount of upwardly distributed wealth and downwardly distributed risk for a, a significant part of the population will result in cheaper televisions and more gaudy outfits, access to whatever kind of design you dream about becomes within the grasp of middle-class lifestyle, right? And that that is the sort of trade-off that 
that I think Carmela is, you know, is trying to grapple with, right? Is, is my access to the wealth of decadent American society worth the association with some form of violence and uh, unethical criminality as long as my husband doesn't get caught, right? Like that's the whole thing, right? It, it, he's not a criminal until he gets caught, right? He's... He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur, right? One one yeah. can like The Sopranos. I think one can lastingly appreciate the sense that what you're describing as downwardly directed risk, it has a name for, and that name is violence. Like the, the show yeah. names downwardly directed risk in this sort of neutered neoliberal language of downward hmm. as violence. Violence, violence, yeah. violence. And the family, again, not a preserve apart from it, but a scene of its condensation. In certain ways, that would go with the zeitgeist insight is that the thing we've been describing, and again, these techno-optimist 90s terms, think of just the Clintonite language of all boats rising, etc., is actually made of violence. It's it's in 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 here in hearing in it is the violence of the racial state, the violence of like heteropatriarchy, etc. Et like violence is at its core. That was Peter Coviella and Zion Yao. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash The Sopranos Revival. Thanks again to the Snarlin' Yarns for the theme song to this season. This has been an episode of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt So when your eyes do wander and your heart does ponder, don't you, sister, don't you even wonder when your hands do touch and your heart does flutter? Don't you, sister, don't you care too much? Uh huh. Uh huh. I don't go fishing off the company pier, cause you know where that'll get you to. Not the company There's nothing but heartbreak Where the boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak Where the boss from hell I can
Nothing but heart. 